Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, we can go ahead and turn in a Bible this morning to Luke 19. We have been journeying, as you are well aware now, through the latter half of Luke's gospel. And last week we finished the 18th chapter, although we also were in Mark's gospel looking at the parallel account of that story. And so this morning we find ourselves moving on into chapter 19 and dealing with a story that might be familiar to many, particularly if you have a Sunday school background, you're probably going to sing the song in the back of your head. As I read, if you are hearing it for the first time, that is okay as well, for it's a beautiful story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, the wee little man that was he. So I tell you what, there it goes. I'm going to break out into song. I knew that was going to happen. All right, Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He, that is Jesus, has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. For the second time in two chapters, again, thinking back to 18 and even before that, but for the second time here in two chapters, Jesus comes face to face with a tax collector. In chapter 18, if you remember, it was a parabolic encounter on the part of Jesus. He told the parable of the Pharisee at prayer there in the temple and a tax collector also at the same altar. If you remember, there was that contrast. There was the Pharisee who lifted up himself proudly and thanked God that he was not like other men. He did all of these good deeds. In fact, he was not like this no good tax collector next to him and prayed to God such. And we laughed at that. What, what pride, what, what boast. And yet the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy upon me. A sinner. So there was that parabolic encounter, if you will, with the tax collector. But here, the encounter is with a literal flesh and blood person. In fact, if you notice, Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. The chief tax collector. He's the one who has the reserved parking space outside of the office with his name on it. Zacchaeus is the one who receives the, you know, world's greatest boss coffee mug 
from those under him at the major holidays. It's this title, interestingly enough, used nowhere else in the New Testament. In fact, you might know that Luke is the only gospel writer who actually records this account of Zacchaeus. This idea of him being a chief tax collector is this very unique and rare title, but it likely indicates, and is supposed to indicate for us, this sort of twofold treachery, if you will, or this twofold money grab on the part of Zacchaeus. Not only is he wealthy by means of collecting taxes from his own people, which you know is what made tax collectors so despised by the people of God in that day. They collect taxes on behalf of Rome, on behalf of this resented occupying force, but he must also have had other tax collectors in his employ. Again, he's the chief tax collector from whom he would receive a cut. It's yet another pot he can sort of skim from the top in order to pad his own pockets. And so Luke includes this detail for it speaks powerfully to, again, how resented he would have been in his context. How hated he was. How resented. And then likewise, then, how radical it is for Christ, of all people, to spend time with this man. Of all the people that Jesus could have lodged with in Jericho, of all the people who could be immortalized in Scripture as representing Jericho, Zacchaeus of Jericho, of all people, this is the one whom Jesus chooses. It's this snake oil salesman of a man that Christ chooses to identify with and to spend time with and to lodge with and to encounter. And so you can imagine, again, the resentment of Zacchaeus and the resentment of his neighbors. Think about it. Zacchaeus' house gets bigger and he keeps putting on additions. His servants more numerous, his clothes more ornate, and all of his neighbors realize and know it's with their hard-earned money, their ill-gotten, empire-enforced money that's being used to, again, pad his pockets and to, to amplify his lifestyle. Remember, Christ isn't against taxation. You know, don't hear that this morning. Oh, good, I can go home and not pay my taxes, okay? The pastor said so. No, of course not, right? We might not be happy with our tax rate or our tax bracket. You might be a flat tax person, whatever. That's a conversation for another day, okay? But we know that Christ is not against taxation. Render unto Caesars what is Caesars, right? Paul himself talks about that in some of his letters as well. But again, we know that tax collectors of the New Testament variety were notorious for taking extra for themselves, for overcharging, for fudging the numbers, for double-dipping, for swindling their people, and again, doing so with inarguable empire-enforced muscle. And so again, of all the people for Jesus to spend time with in Jericho, why Zacchaeus? Why Zacchaeus? Well, as we kept reading, you'll notice that we find our answer not in Zacchaeus' past, but in his present and in his future. For in spite of all Zacchaeus had done, treacherously climbed his way to the top of the social ladder, Zacchaeus was only the lonelier still. For all the ways that Zacchaeus had filled his pockets to the brim, 
He was only the emptier still. And think about that. Again, we know the reaction of his neighbors, and we can feel that viscerally. Perhaps some of us even feel cheated at times, or perhaps some of us have been swindled even at times, taken advantage of, and we know that pain. We know that, that just visceral feeling of being extorted or, or cheated, unable to, to do anything about it, ripped off, whatever it might be. But think about Zacchaeus as well. Tax collectors were despised by their own people, as we know, disowned as children of Abraham. And yet at the same time, if you think about it, they weren't also respected by their Roman overlords. Why? Because they're still servants. They're still servants. They're still underlings working for an occupying force. And nobody likes a traitor, even the Romans, whose pockets he was helping to line And so again, a man like Zacchaeus had wealth, but couldn't enjoy it. And a man like Zacchaeus had position, but he couldn't use it. And so for all the attempts at filling himself, again, he was still empty. Empty, longing, searching. But he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard of this man who taught that in his father's house, are many rooms, then he goes to prepare a place for us. He's heard of the man who teaches that all who are weary and heavy laden are to come to him and find rest. You see, Zacchaeus has heard of this man who's been teaching that there is true treasure in heaven that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves cannot break in, and steal, that tax collectors can't come in and skim off the top. There is this eternal, lasting wealth. There is one that Jesus has taught whose arms are open wide to prodigals and to outcasts and to cheaters and swindlers just like himself. And so what does this small man, this wee little man, what does he do? With outsized ambition, outsized ego and all, what does this man do? He climbs. He climbs. But as the story goes, this time he doesn't climb another social ladder, doesn't reach for a higher rung on the corporate financial structure. He doesn't climb a ladder for his own self-interest, financial or social gain. If you notice, he climbs a sycamore tree in hopes of seeing the one who he's been told can redeem our pasts who can resurrect our present and who can renew our futures. Zacchaeus wants to get a glimpse at Jesus. But you see, because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi and because Jesus is ministering to and surrounded by Jewish followers, you think about it, here's a time where Zacchaeus can't con his way to the front. He can't. He can't con his way to the front. He can't, he can't pull out his tax collector badge because here it has no power. In fact, to do so in that crowd might be dangerous. Might be dangerous. He can't expect VIP seating or, again, front row credentials. And so he does the only thing he knows how to in the moment. He climbs a sycamore tree to get a better view 
because he wants to see Jesus. And the question for us is, how about you and I this morning? Thinking about Zacchaeus and his experience and thinking about our own lives, thinking about the shame of his past, are you ever tempted to believe that your past, whatever it might be, different for all of us, but are you ever tempted to think that your past has scarlet lettered you in a way that your access to God is now barred, taken away? Are you tempted to believe that your past defines you in a way that is irreparable? Are you tempted to believe that your past labels you in a way that makes coming to God impossible? If so, then here is the posture that we take. It's the posture of Zacchaeus. We come and we see Jesus. We come and we fix our eyes. We, we look again to Jesus. For like Zacchaeus, we are to let no man or no society, no apparent shortcoming about ourselves, we're to let no church or no crowd tell us that we're too far gone, that we're too far gone, that we're unlovable or unwinnable or irredeemable. But instead, what do we do? Like Zacchaeus, we take no for an answer. We climb whatever our sycamore tree is, and we cast our eyes on Jesus, the one who says, Behold, I have come to make all things new. The one who says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. We climb that tree and we cast our eyes on Jesus. And you see, just like last week when we saw with blind Bartimaeus, remember that? Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and encounters blind Bartimaeus, well now he is in Sorry, he's approaching Jericho. Well, now he's in Jericho, and he, and, he, and he finds Zacchaeus. But you remember, with blind Bartimaeus, his healing, too, was beautiful. Beautiful. But the deeper beauty wasn't in the persistence of Bartimaeus asking, but the beauty was in the fact that Jesus bothered to stop at all for someone so culturally and socially insignificant in that moment. Well, here, too, the deeper beauty of this passage isn't the climbing of Zacchaeus, though it's, it's honorable, and we have much to learn from it. But the deeper beauty, bold again as his climbing was, the deeper beauty here, if you notice, is that before Zacchaeus can even reach the top, Jesus saw him first. And I love that. That Jesus sees Zacchaeus first. Jesus sees him and he knows him. He cuts through the facade and he really knows Zacchaeus. Again, sin and all, shortcomings and all, shame and insecurities and all. And what does Christ say to him? Zacchaeus, hurry up and get down here, would you? I know you worked really hard to climb that tree. You're a small man, it was probably doubly hard. You got short arms, whatever it might be, right? It's a slippery tree. I know you worked hard to get up there, but Zacchaeus, would you hurry and come down? For I must stay at your house today. I must. I must. Not by concession. Not by no other options, better options. I must. 
Think about that. Was the Jericho Motel 6 full? No occupancy? Was there not a more reputable, you know, synagogue ruler that Christ could have stayed with? Was there no Airbnb in Jericho? I mean, what's the deal? Now, you see, we're told that Jesus must stay at the house of Zacchaeus the way that things which go up, again, think of Zacchaeus, must come down. Think of the law of physics, right? Or think about how things which are, which will stay what, stationary unless acted upon by an outside force, right? Think about all these, these laws just embedded into the fabric of the universe, right? Think about how water will, will always settle to the lowest point, right? That's a law that we know. It'll find an opening. It'll find a way out, whether that's a crevice in our roof. <laughs> Hopefully not, right? Insurance is tough these days. Whether it's something, it'll find it must. That is just a law of the universe, a law of physics. Well, here, Jesus, again, if you want to think of it in the law of grace or salvation or God's plan and economy, Jesus must stay at the house of Zacchaeus. He must break every social cue and expectation. He must break every chain of pharisaical piety and works righteousness thinking because in Christ's own words, what does he say? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. I must, Zacchaeus, stay at your house today. And to put it in the context of Luke's gospel, Jesus has already shown his heart for the lost in the parables, think of chapter 15. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son or a prodigal son. But here, we're face to face with a real lost person who, again, is not only lost in terms of how his own people think of him, lost to God's covenant. That's the force, if you really think about it, of verse 9 when he assures Zacchaeus that he also is a son of Abraham. Because he's a traitor, again. And so in the minds of his people, he is outside the covenantal plan of God. But Zacchaeus is also lost, as we know, in his own estimation. He feels his guilt and shame. That's why he's come to Jesus. It's why he will make reparations mentioned at the end. And what Jesus has come to demonstrate, again, to those who think they are the true children of Abraham, is that if they think they are true children of Abraham, just because they've kept their noses clean, just because they haven't stooped quite to the level of someone like Zacchaeus, Jesus here shows them that to be a true child of Abraham is to cast oneself wholly on his mercy and grace and to rest in nothing less than saving faith. You see, Jesus knows this man to be lost beyond measure, but the comfort for all of us is that Jesus knows this before we do. And he doesn't even wait for us to come to him, but he seeks us where we are, just like he did Zacchaeus. He saw Zacchaeus and he called him before Zacchaeus could come down from his treeside perch. Before a word is on our tongue, you know it, O Lord. Before we were formed in our mother's womb, you knew us. Before the foundation of the world, you predestined us for adoption. You called us by name, like he calls Zacchaeus. You called us out 
You transfer us from the domain of darkness in the kingdom of his marvelous light. You set our feet upon the rock. Again, when it comes to grace and mercy, Jesus is the one who seeks. Jesus is the initiating party. And that's a beautiful reminder for us, a beautiful reality. One of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, writes that in matters of God's grace, hyperboles are understatements. You cannot overstate the seeking power of God when it comes to finding his children. And again, this is a beautiful reality because all of us at one time or another in all of our lives, if we're honest, we know what it's like to not be sought. Isn't that true? All of us. We know the feeling on the opposite, to not be sought. To be rejected, to be dumped, to be cast aside. We know what it's like to be unwanted or avoided or marginalized. That could be relationally. Maybe we didn't make a sports team, didn't get that role in the play. We got passed over for a promotion. We know what it's like to be singled out, to be unwanted, to be unloved, to be unpursued. But not with God. Jesus here seeks Jesus sought Zacchaeus, and he sought us as well. And if you think about it, in the examples we just mentioned, we might know the feeling of unpursuit, of not being wanted, of not being sought. Again, the feeling of outcasting or rejection. And again, perhaps those things happened because of some perceived shortcoming of ours, not good enough, not skilled enough, not pretty enough. Or perhaps, perhaps because of some you know, wrong that we've committed. We put ourselves in that position to be outcasted or rejected or, or unpursued. Because of a negative consequence that we bear. But what's so amazing about Jesus is that his seeking of us is actually because of those very things. Isn't that amazing? That's why he seeks us. He loves bringing mercy from our mess. He loves bringing life from death. He seeks us precisely because doctors don't come for those who are well. He seeks us because the lost are the only ones who can truly be found. One of my favorite authors when it comes particularly to the writings of Luke and his parables and his stories is Robert Capon. And Capon puts it this way. Lost sheep don't have to ask the shepherd to find them. Lost coins don't have to make long prayers to get the housewife to hunt for them. And lost sons who may think that they are only allowed to ask for some plausible, sawed-off substitute for salvation are always going to be totally surprised by the incredible unasked for party that just falls in their laps. All they have to be is lost. Not fancy lost, perceptibly lost, just plain lost. And just plain dead too. Not humbly dead or engagingly dead or cooperatively, cooperatively dead, just dead. If I be lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all to me. The sheep, the coin, the son, the widow, Zacchaeus, you and me, the whole sorry lot of us. We don't have to do a blessed thing. 
or have a legitimate case, Jesus does it all. You see, Jesus does it all, including putting himself in the presence of one who is unclean. Similar to how he did the same thing with the woman at the well, or the woman caught with a discharge of blood who touches him and makes him unclean, or how he does so with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus here strolls into the house of socially, emotionally, covenantally unclean Zacchaeus, and without judgment, without harsh words of condemnation, without scolding and demeaning and accusatory preaching, Jesus dines with him, and he socializes with him, and he lives life with him, and he accepts him, no questions asked. And notice how in his interaction, we see then writ large, and we see embodied what the Apostle Paul later taught in Romans 2. That it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. The kindness of the Lord. You see, too often we expect repentance first. Too often we give the impression that Jesus only can be come to once we clean ourselves up. Before coming to Jesus, before being loved and welcomed, but here we see it's the unfathomable kindness of Jesus to Zacchaeus, a man who doesn't deserve it, that first softens his heart. That softens his calloused, swindling heart, and only upon first experiencing such welcome and such grace does Zacchaeus then give grace in return. Upon experiencing such generosity, and only receiving it first, does Zacchaeus then give generosity in return? And you see, this is the beautiful picture of the Christian life. This is the beautiful picture of, of true conversion, that regeneration precedes repentance, but at the same time, repentance evidences regeneration. And this is what we see with Zacchaeus. Keenly aware of his wrongdoing, but loved, what does he do? He wants to make amends. Keenly aware of his stealing, what does he want to do in light of God's grace? He wants to give. Keenly aware of his taking, but because of the grace of Jesus, what does he want to do? He now wants to empty himself. How is that possible? How is that possible? Only because he saw Jesus. And so how about us this morning as we close? Have we seen Jesus? If we have, then what wrongs has he called us to right? If we've seen Jesus, what has he called us to give? Again, not to earn his love, but because of his love which has already come to our house and has called us child. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for salvation coming to our house. We thank you for seeing us as we ran and wandered our own way, 
climbed whatever tree it was, only for you to tell us to come down, that you have great plans for us, that you have a new future for us, that you have a new destiny for us, all made possible by your mercy and grace. And so, Father, would we reflect yet again on what you have done for us, on the great love which you have for us, and will we also reflect upon what that love then calls us to do and be? And would we, by the power of your Spirit, and would we, by the knowledge that we are already yours, would that then propel us towards what it is you call us towards? That we too might be lighthouses, that we too might be able to point beyond ourselves to what you have done, that we might be your agents of grace and mercy to a world that so desperately needs it. Father, would you help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.